And then every time I called those people up, I just wanted to pull my hair out. So I was done. Isn't it too late for that, Chuck? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is. But that's what my kids would say, too. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrobes. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to BraintreePayments.com slash RubyRogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 229 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have David Brady. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 229 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Today on our panel, we have Charles Maxwood. Thanks. We also have Coraline Ada Emke. Hey, everybody. And Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're going to be talking about when is it worthwhile to introduce a new language, tool, or database, and when will it likely bite you in the rear end? So, uh... Jessica, you suggested this. Do you want to kind of get us going? Sure. A few months ago, I went to Polyconf in Poland, and it was a wonderful conference, and we talked about all these different languages. Yet, I have this nagging question in the back of my mind of, I love trying new languages, but I don't always like it when other people at work do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're the only one that happens to, so... (laughs) No, that's actually happened to me right now, too. My rule of thumb for introducing new tools or, or learning new tools, uh, languages, databases, whatever, it's okay if I do it. That's just my rule. And it's also okay if we standardize, as long as we standardize on what I want to use. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think some companies decide to be polyglot just for the sake of being polyglot, just to say that, you know, oh, we're a really exciting place. We try all these new technologies, all these new languages, all these new latest tools, without really looking at, are these things going to add value to our stack or not? I totally have this image in my head of two developers sitting in facing cubicles, and one of them leans over and says, pardon me, do you have any great poem? It's just kind of, you know, we're, we're so good 
because we use all of these varied and different tools. And I think it is important as a developer to be polyglot because that expands your thinking and that expands your problem-solving vocabulary. But, you know, there has to be some kind of criteria that um, a new language or tool meets before you introduce it into your work stack. Because working in many languages makes development more exciting, but it also makes production more exciting. Yeah, I want, but I want in boring the bad production. Kind. Yeah. In the bad kind of exciting. Exactly. Right. So, Coraline, you said there should be some standards. Why is that? To make sure that it's not resume-driven development, basically. To make sure that there's um, a clear case to be made for a new tool or technology or language that is going to solve an actual problem that actually exists and not just is something interesting and a diversion and something, like you said, to make production more complicated. So I, I guess the thing is, is, you know, it may be a great tool, but when do you know you have the right sales pitch for it? When, when do you know when you're describing it to your coworkers that you're saying the right things about it? Again, I think it ties to, you know, we have this problem and our current tool set is not solving that problem very well. And this other tool has promise for letting us solve the problem in a more effective or efficient way. I think that's the best possible case you could make for something like that. I just realized I'm in the middle of writing a rant about good software, like writing good code. And I realize it absolutely applies to these tools. Can I rant for a second? Rant, please rant. Oh, yeah. All right, here's my rant for good code and good tools, okay? It should minimize the buy-in effort for the entry level. So the amount of effort learning needed to be able to just get around in the tool. We've all sat down at a code base and we have to fix a bug and we have no clue where to even begin looking, right? Because, I mean, it's in 47 directories. They're 15 levels deep. Who knows where anything is? But it should also maximize payoff for mastering the learning curve. So what I mean by this is there are two classic arguments for how we should write code. Should we write smart code or should we write dumb code? And we always argue in the negative sense. Like the, we, we talk about you know writing code that everybody can understand. And they usually mean programming for the, lo- the lowest common denominator or programming for dumb people. And they think they're saying minimize buy-in, but what they're really saying is cripple the payoff for anybody bothering to master anything more advanced than the five operators for incrementing and decrementing variables. On the other hand, when you have people who get angry because they've been crippled by this, they then turn around and they say, no, we should expect our developers to be smart. We should expect people to step up their game. We have a minimum level, you know, and it's up there that we expect you. And it turns out that they think that they're maximizing payoff for mastering the learning curve, but what they end up doing is just enlarging the buy-in for the entry level, for the people that are trying to get around. So that's my rant. If you're going to write good stuff, it should be easy. Or if you're going to introduce a new tool, if you're going to say, I want to solve this problem in a different way than we're already solving it, because the way we're solving it right now hurts. If you can demonstrate that the new way of solving it is easier for somebody who's never seen the new solution to use at, at a simple rudimentary level, and yet also has all this extensibility that if somebody takes the time to learn it, they can actually do more and more things with it, then that's a good tool and that's a good case. And that's worth 
making the argument to production of, I'm going to make your life a little interesting for a little while. And I know that's bad, but hey, all change makes production interesting. We just have to vet the changes. That's my dog scratching herself, by the way. That's the jingling in the background. And that was her shaking. And now she's walking off. Um, That was Bella. That's her place in the podcast. But yeah, so anyway, that's the end of my rant is just minimize entry level and maximize the payoff at the other end. And oh, with production, all change makes things interesting for production. So when you want to introduce a change, all you have to do with production is you have to vet that change. You have to say it's going to be worth it. David, I'm interested in the um, a couple of things you said. First of all, um, about dumb code, you know, do we want to write our code for the lowest common denominator? How do you think that's influenced by trying to level up developers along the developers that you're working with that maybe are more junior? You have changing expectations for them over time that their code is going to get smarter and smarter? No, I have an expectation that their code will get clearer and clearer. And the, the epiphany that I had on this is that you don't have to write dumb code in order to write good code. And what I mean by this is that if you take the time to write an intention-revealing method instead of trying to figure out how to code golf it, then that's going to be better code. That's going to be code that is right. Um, right? And it's, it's arguably, okay, if you're, if you're dumbing down, so if you've got some code golf and you remove it, you replace it with 15 methods that are all supposedly intention-revealing, okay, you're probably dumbing things down. But on the other hand, if you take a really gnarly regular expression thing and then you wrap it in a method call that tells you exactly what that gnarly thing is doing, you now have a bit of code that somebody can read and go, oh, this does that. And then they can look at the gnarly regex and go, what on earth is that? How does this even, this, this is line noise, how does this even parse? And somebody who is at a more junior level, they can kind of back away slowly from that weird, <laughs> weird line of code, and they can just run the test suite and see that that line is covered and go, okay, it works. I'm just going to back away from this now. And then a senior person is going to look at that and go, I totally know how that works. And yes, that's a good name for it. But that's the trick is that the, the people who say, oh, let's write smart code, they'll just inject that gnarly regex in the middle of some method somewhere without trying to reveal their intention. And that was the, the second part of my rant is we should stop calling code code because I'm sick and tired of people trying to encode what they mean with a sufficient level of entropy that the Germans can't break the cipher. Stop trying to <laughs> stop trying to encrypt your software. Write software. Stop writing code. I don't want to learn your code. Nice. That's hilarious. You mentioned code coverage on a regular expression. I want to see a code coverage mm-hmm. tool that tells you whether every possible case in your regex has been hit. So yeah, a code coverage tool is going to back away slowly in terror when it sees your regular expression. You're going to get a yes or no, was this ever touched? (laughs) Right, right. That could be a good case for generative testing, Jessica. It could, it could. Just measuring the, oh gosh, I don't want to look at a regex and count the different ways to do it. But you're right, you're right. At least with the generative testing, you'd be more likely to hit one of those corner cases. Right, yeah. But but I I agree with you, David. Yeah. Well, and and it it gets worse because if you're using uh, Oniguruma, you can, that's a Turing complete language. And so you can prove. It's the regex engine. Oniguruma? Or regex engine in Ruby. Yeah. 
Ruby's regular expression, it allows you to embed callbacks and recursive callbacks into itself. So like I saw a person actually write the entire FizzBuzz uh, solution in a single regular expression using, awesome. using callbacks. And it seems like a, about a year ago, we had Tom Stewart on the show, and we, we went through understanding computation. And he had this big rant about how you can't parse HTML with regular expressions because normal regular expressions are not Turing complete, but HTML is a Turing complete language. So you'll never be able to parse all of HTML with regular expressions. You just can't do it. Well, it actually turns out that with Onigurama, you can because it's also a Turing complete regular expression. But let me tell you, it's not going to be simple. It's not going to be angle bracket, find me stuff, and then, you know, close angle bracket. You're going to have, you know, three pages of code barf in that regular expression. Which goes back to your solution of, yes, give it a name, give it some tests, kind of Mm -hmm. layer the understanding on top of the cleverness. Yeah. And I agree with you. And part of code being clear is knowing your audience. And if your audience is a bunch of Ruby developers, then writing your program in another language is going to have an increased cost. So there better be a good payoff. Yes, yes. There's a, a developer at Cover My Meds uh, named Mark Lorenz, and he's one of the smartest human beings on the planet. I mean, he can shatter a human mind at 40 paces. It's just astonishing. And he wrote some pairing tools that let you share, uh, kind of like Teammate does, you know, it lets you share your terminal and, you know, you can join and, you know, unjoin and, and it'll play back the session. And he wrote it kind of on a dare. He just he wanted to learn Go. And, and this is actually, <laughs> I'm, you know what, I've named Mark. I'm going to praise Mark and I'm going to ding him at the same time just because I can. I love you, Mark. This program is called Go PTY Tunnel, right? And Go PTY, it's like, like a tunnel start and a tunnel stop and, and that sort of thing. And it lets us connect over the VPN, over an encrypted connection. And, you know, it lets people that are out on the sticks like me, it lets us exchange PHI and PII as, as much as we need to as developers. I, mean, I shouldn't see very much of it. But when I do, it's encrypted over this tunnel. And that's it's a good thing. And this is a perfect example of what I would call a good tool. Because I haven't learned Go yet. But I don't need to to use his tool. I just say go PTY tunnel and and it up comes up and it runs. And there was this weird hiccup that went went wrong with it one day. And I pinged him and he says, "Yeah, it does that." And just stop doing the thing that makes it do that. You know, it's like it's like the old Linux thing of you know, like when I move my mouse to the left, it hangs the computer. And the the guru says, "Stop moving your mouse to the left." Um, <laughs> but it was like a really weird corner case. It was like I was trying to send like command option something, you know, over go PTY and it wasn't going through. And he's like, yeah, don't do that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't really need it. So that was fine. But if I wanted to learn go, I could add that feature and I could, or I could debug that problem. So this is a tool that would maximize investment in the learning curve, but it also minimizes the minimum buy-in to use this tool. So comments on that. And then I've, I've got a counter case that I can also pull from Mark's code bag. (laughs) Well, so the thing that comes to my mind is that, I mean, so the tool doesn't add any cognitive load to you because you can just use it to do whatever it is that you're doing, right? The issue becomes, what if Mark gets hit by a bus? Then it becomes somebody's cognitive load, and it's not in the core competency of anybody else in the company. Right. And so, I mean, Go may be the right tool for the job, and ultimately it may make things better all around to have used Go to solve this problem. But, you know, at the same time, there is that 
trade-off. You know, if mm-hmm. if somebody comes in and says, "We'll give you a million dollars to come help us with our startup," he's gone. Right. Yeah. But it's just a tool. Yes. And if you didn't have this tool, mm-hmm. or if you were unable to modify it, and Mark wasn't there, you would probably use a different tool. Right. Yeah. The risk of using this tool is very low. Right. Because you never get to a place where you're worse off without it than you were before you had it. Right. It's a right. drop because, in. Yeah, it's a drop in. Because mm-hmm. because we have not maximized because he he hasn't maximized the minimum buy-in entry level for this tool. Like there's there's nobody at our company that has to maintain this tool. Right. It's just there and it has a known issue and Nobody, including Mark, cares to fix it. And, and it's fine. We just live with it. And so now what we're literally trading off is this, this problem that Chuck just mentioned, right? That if Mark leaves, okay, yeah, we, we have a couple other gophers at the, you know, at, at work, right. but let's say we didn't have any. And okay, now this tool becomes a legacy tool, right? We don't have to throw it out right away. We can wait until we have a problem or there's a reason we can't use it. And then we'll go out and we'll look at teammate or we'll look at some mm-hmm. other some other screen hero or whatever, and, you know, that kind of thing. So this is still a really good example of, you know, the the hit on the maintaining this tool down the road. And you said you you, you nailed it just right, Chuck, which is the cognitive load, the, the mental, the number of things that people who use the tool have to keep in working memory just in order to kind of buy in and use the tool and be at the table is minimized. And so in that particular case, Having an environment where we actually tell our developers, we want you to go learn new languages just for the sake of learning new languages is absolutely worth it because we're learning new things, we're learning interesting things, and it's the kind of interesting that's exciting and encouraging and not the kind of interesting that's like our server burned down at, at you know 2 a.m. On a, on a Saturday and production is down and that's a bad interesting. There's a reason that this one is low risk and useful and like not scary. And it's because it is a tool. You didn't introduce a new programming language that's going into production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also see that it's not mission critical for what you're doing. I mean, yeah. you pointed out that you can find other viable replacements for it. So, it, yeah, it's not high risk that way either. Because, yep. you know, if if something changes in the ecosystem and it just doesn't work anymore and you know, Matt doesn't have time or doesn't have the inclination to fix it, then you just move on to something else. Yeah. Are you guys familiar with the probability and risk matrix? No. So it's from economics, and I I can't remember all of them. There's four quadrants. Basically, there's uh, how likely is this to happen, the low probability or high probability, and how much danger is there if this is going, if it does happen, is it low, is it low risk or is it high risk? And so this tool hits the sweet spot because it's low probability of going off the rails on us and it's low risk. What? If it, if it goes off the rails, we don't really care. The one thing I remember from economics is that if you have low probability, high risk, buy insurance. That's what you should insure. If you have something that's uh, low probability, low risk, you should not insure it. If you can afford to replace that consumer item, you should not pay the insurance premiums. That's one of the things that I remember from it. And so, yeah, so a bad tool or a bad coding decision is high probability, high risk. <laughs> I'm going to start using binary pointers in Ruby. Why not? I'm, in fact, I'm going to recompile Ruby to add case insensitivity to it, and we're going to push that to production. What could possibly go wrong, right? Anyway, that's the risk reward matrix. I think um, the matrix is an interesting way to sort of start categorizing tools that you want to add to the tool chain. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's uh, that's sort of what I was talking about with having you know some kind of criteria, even if it's from economics, even if it's something that's sort of made up on mm-hmm. the spur of the moment, but just having some sort of evaluation criteria. So you're not just saying, well, I'm interested in this, and so everyone has to learn it. Yeah, and that's that's actually a really fair point, that this tool is something that the developers use, and they don't have to work in. They're not soaking in it. They're just they're just using it. It's just a, you know, it's a tunnel. It just appears, and you can magically share your screen with somebody else. Whereas writing software, well, now the rest of your team has to soak in that. You know, that can make people crazy, but your end user doesn't have to soak in that. And so there are things that you can do in your software that are gross and gnarly that as long as you all agree that, it, yes, that's not the stupidest thing that could possibly work, but it is pretty simple, but we don't have time to optimize it. Okay, fine. Just push it out there. And as long as the customer doesn't notice and doesn't care, then for the customer, it's low risk, low probability. Whereas for the developers, it's you know high probability because they're soaking in it, they're touching it, but how much risk is it? How seriously nasty is it? And that's that's a question. You have to argue the merit of that. Um, yeah, but you you also have to take into account the payoff too. Yeah, and the probability yeah. of success. Right. And I mean, so so it kind of they're both ends of that. And so if it's a high probability that you're going to be successful, but you you know it's also high risk in the sense that it you know if it doesn't work out, it's high impact, and mm-hmm. you know so you, you you do have to kind of account for both of those things. Yeah, I, I said risk reward matrix earlier, yeah. and that was incorrect. I meant the risk and probability, or the yeah, the impact and probability matrix. But yeah, you balance that against the risk reward matrix, which is the same thing: the probability of gaining a reward and the amount of the reward. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah, you offset that. The point that I was making about like developers soaking in it is that the further down the delivery chain you are for a given decision usually the I, and I could be completely wrong about this but the the impact of that is usually ameliorated because you usually don't have to go up your food chain to you know we, what is this delivery chain i'm i'm talking about things like the text editor that you use is something you use to write code and the code base is something that you as a team put together and it makes a website and the or it makes a thing that per, that the IT team has to publish and and push into production <gasps> and you production. have a separate production support team yes and oh we i shiny thinged you good but, uh, but, <laughs> but oh then, no 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 i was making yeah. fun of you for not being devops yet. oh okay yeah yeah well devops is easy you just cd slash and then chmod dash r 777 <laughs> right so <laughs> i don't want you on my team anymore <laughs> <laughs> Nobody does after i say that now we know why you have a separate production support team yes yes exactly they made it just for me so i'm also the reason we we have a Actually, we don't have an HR department, but I'm I'm kind of the standing joke about, you know, someday we're going to have to have an HR department and you're the reason why, Dave. But that's what I mean is like kind of the, the production chain, the food chain, right? It's like you could be using RubyMine as your text editor and I could be using Emacs as my text editor and anybody else on the development team doesn't care because they're, they are receiving text and you deliver and the IT team couldn't care less what text editor you're using. They also couldn't care about what code you're writing. They just have, does it work. They just have to push it out. And user doesn't care what production is doing. They just want to access the website. And so that's what I mean by the further down you get down the production tool chain, the lower probability and the lower, well, you don't the actually have, con- 
the, the yeah, the lower the impact of a problem. I I I, I want to say I think pro, I think probability just channels right through. If I make a bad decision in the code. Yeah, if I make a bad decision in Emacs, it can end up writing oh, all the files on the disk bad, and then production pushes. Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so, that's why we have we have version control. Exactly. So you can kill your own computer. Yep. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. with your idea of the, the delivery pipeline, there are some decisions that you make as a developer that do have downstream impacts. Mm-hmm. For example, or, if you or choose, sideways impact, yeah, yeah, if you choose a particular language and now there's a new app framework that has to go with it, and maybe all your Docker images have to change, somebody has to adjust to that. So, how important is it to collaborate on those sorts of changes with different people who are responsible for different parts of delivering that package to production? So, uh, wow, I think I've actually turned out to be the guest on the show. That's weird. Um, <laughs> it's kind of fun, actually, but. Uh, I'm actually making this up as I go on, go along. You're, by which, what I mean is, you're actually using the Socratic method on me and teaching me about my own idea that I'm, I was going to rant more heavily on this. And this is actually really beautiful. That if you have, of course, I can turn it into a joke. So going back to the beginning of the call, right? I, as long as I'm the one learning and you know playing with the new tool, it's okay. But if anybody else does it, it's not okay. That holds true for sufficiently large values of me. By which I mean, if you're going to decide on an event-based web framework instead of a you know procedurally done or a threaded-based you know standard like Rails you know type uh, web framework, that impacts everyone sideways you know to you, every, all of your peers in the production chain. So if we if a sufficiently large value of me is my entire team then you absolutely have to collaborate. And that's, that's kind of what I would define as the, how do you define sufficiently large values of me is, are you communicating with each other? If you're not communicating with, you know, another vertical in your company, you can't ever really say that you're collaborating at a, like a native level. You can collaborate further down that you, you can both be shooting into the same output bucket and you can synchronize that. But like one of you could be doing, you know, event-based go or whatever or elixir based you know stuff and the other one of you is doing straight up ruby on rails and nobody really cares but within your team collaboration it's one of those things that where there's like stuff that's like important and then there's stuff that's like required but there's actually a higher level priority than requirement and that is a constraint and so collaboration i would say in this case is a constraint if you're not talking with your the rest of your team by definition you should not be rippling changes onto them. We all you want to say, surprise, I just wrote this entire subsystem in Go, so good luck with yeah. that. Yeah. Or even in Ruby, I mean, if you're, so let's say that your core stack is Rails. I had a boss at one job, and he was the very definition of a cowboy coder. Mm-hmm. And so he would stay up all night, and he would write about half of a feature. <laughs> You know, and he wasn't working on our team all the time, so he didn't understand all of the constraints. Yeah. And so when he'd get in and he'd write half a feature, he'd change half of the other features in the app, and then we'd show up the next day and he'd be like, well, I got it most of the way there. Go ahead and fix it or go ahead and finish it. And what would wind up happening, unbeknownst to him, was we would go in and we would rip out all the changes he made, and then we <laughs> would put the feature in the way that it needed to go in. Nice. But, you know, in some cases, he would get upset because his, he'd go and look at it later, and he'd realize that none of his code made it into the code base. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, 
it, it's those kinds of things too, where you know you make these assumptions, you decide something needs to be done, and yes, without communicating with the rest of the team, you force them to deal with this pile of garbage you've left in the middle of the floor. Now, whether or not it's actual garbage doesn't really matter because when they come in and they see it and they don't understand it, it looks like this big ball of string that they've got to go unwind to figure out what you did so that they can actually make it function in a way that the the team can accept. Yeah. I laughed when you said your boss would stay up all night because I was literally about to cite that exact diurnal condition, if you will, or nocturnal condition that we've all come into work in the morning and, you know, the crazy guy on the team has stayed up all night and, you know, has converted everything to XML based Python. And you're like, what? Oh God, please no. Yeah, right. Um, And so, yeah, sideways changes. I would be okay if he'd stayed up all night or if she had stayed up all night writing this crazy thing and put it in a branch. And then you show up, everybody shows up the next day. And then this developer says, okay, real quick team meeting. I just did something completely crazy, but it takes our web server from 1200 milliseconds per request to 12 milliseconds per request. And now you've got the rest of the team going, oh, really? XML in Python, you say? No, no, Python in XML. Hmm, tell me more. And, you know, it's, yeah, I'm, I, I know my skin is crawling too. But uh, if you included this constraint of collaboration and communication on a sideways, constr- uh, sideways, moving sideways inside the production chain is what I'm saying. Basically, the people that are in the same level of the production chain as you, that's what I'm talking about when I say moving sideways. If, if you aren't communicating, then by definition, you are placing yourself upstream in the, the chain to everybody else. And I guess that completely shoots my theory that downstream in the chain lowers the risk of change or impact, doesn't it? So You talked about collaboration and coordination being necessary constraints, but who's responsible for training in a scenario like that? That's a really good question. I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I, I would s- Someone said just the other day, I don't remember who it was, somebody at Strange Loop, that when you bring a new language into your work, you are taking on a second full-time job, which is being that expert for everyone in the company. I like it. Yep. And that should be part of the cost of, when when you consider vetting the cost of change, you should include that, right? That, oh yeah, I now am the full-time Go evangelist because I brought this in. That can be a huge hit and take a, a huge hit on productivity. So definitely something to consider. Um, at the very least, you should, you know, probably put together some training materials or do a brown bag lunch or do something mm-hmm. along those lines. But yeah, you have to be that expert moving forward. You're going to be the person that people are going to go to. Yep. And that should, that should factor into your decision. So I think we've talked a lot about impact and we've talked a lot about whether or not it's worth it. But yeah, let's talk about bringing. So let's say that you've convinced everybody, okay, to bring in this new technology, whatever it is. What is the process for bringing it in then? Do I mean, do you just go after a whole hog or should you kind of experiment with it for a while and see if it really delivers the way that you expect it to? And yeah, who does the training? Uh, where do you go to you know, get expertise. Uh, how far do you adopt it into your system? I mean, do you move everything over to the database? I think it depends a lot about what technology you're talking about. If it's a tool, you can just start using it with your team and maybe it'll spread to other teams. Mm-hmm. If it's a language, you've got to prove out the production support story and the maintenance story and the upgrade story. If it's a database, 
run away. <laughs> Seriously, if it when you talk about bringing in a new database technology, this is really frightening because I mean, if you put code in production and it doesn't work out and you want to replace it, you just replace it. But once you start giving a database your data, it owns you. Uh, I was uh, talking to someone once about why I didn't like SQL queries embedded in Ruby code, and it just stinks of PHP to me. And one of the arguments I was making was database portability, because if you are keying down to a feature of a specific database, then that makes that code really fragile, really brittle, and you can never change the database. And the person stumped me when they said, how many times have you actually changed a database in a production system? Right. Right. It's really, really hard. Yeah. I have worked in environments where we had more than one database type, and I've seen it done well, and I've seen it done poorly. And what it usually boils down to is how well you understand the data and the shape of the data and how the data needs to be thought about. Sure. You can have more than one database. Yesterday, I was talking to Aaron Bedra, who works at Groupon. And at Groupon, you can have any database you want as long as it's Postgres or Cassandra. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you can support multiple databases, but when you as a company are supporting a database, you have to commit to that. You need a team of people who really understands the database and the data you're putting into it. And you need to be able to upgrade it and add, configure it and add space when you need to. It's a major commitment for the company. I'd like to take the well, two comments there. First of all, Coraline, you mentioned, you know, how many times have you changed the database? That's actually kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because nobody's writing portable layers is part of the reason why changing databases is so hard, right? And so it, it's kind of like saying, well, this is, this is so hard to do. Let's just go ahead and make it even harder by... I disagree with that. Okay. Well, well I'm saying like this is so hard to do. Let's not invest in making this easy because it's low probability, high risk. We'll just buy insurance against it. I should say, I, I disagree with that in this particular case. The mm -hmm. code is much easier to change than moving the data to another database. Oh, this will be fun. This will be fun because I was about to go there next, which is that at CoverMyMed, we have several different verticals, right? And there are some core technologies that we all use across the entire company. Like there's the drugs API for looking up prescriptions and that service is visible to everybody in the company, is used by every team. So it's a it's a layer, it's a horizontal layer in, nice. in the company stack. Seems nice on the face of it. It is an absolute freaking nightmare because you can't change anything because it breaks everybody. It's like you literally can't even tell. Uh, I, I found a bug in the thing that handles prior authorization requests. And I'm like, no, this is, there's a comment on there saying that we're going to change, you know, this is going away soon and I get blamed it. And yeah, it was 24 months old and that bug was still, and I went and checked and the bug was still there. And I tracked down one of the senior developers and I said, this bug is still here. Can I just change the validation on this to require this field to exist? And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. We still have people in production that are writing incorrect requests to the database. We argued about it a little bit. And, and basically what we, what the conclusion we came to is that we're not writing incorrect requests to the database because this is a horizontal layer. This is now the de facto standard. It's a contract. It's an API. Yes. 
And basically, you know, it's it's like we can't you can't break the drugs API. You can only break yourself against it. And <laughs> to to abuse a quote by Cecil B. DeMille, but I would argue that a database is like a database technology frequently is just implicitly considered to be this horizontal layer underpinning everybody that's working on it. And so when you try to introduce a different database technology, especially if it's a if it's a completely different kind, like it's good it's good that they're using, you know, Postgres or Cassandra because now you've got you've got a a relational database and you've got, you know, a document store and you can leverage whichever one works better for you. But if you yeah, if you tried to introduce Mongo or if you tried to en- introduce, you know, a, you know, a, a vertical store, you know, column store or whatever, uh, one of those databases, that's already served by the Cassandra people. And you're you're establishing a new minimum barrier to entry for that database technology. And I'm agreeing that, you know, changing the database, usually a bad idea. I've done it a couple of times in my career and you always, always, always run into, you, you start discovering that databases sort things differently they, and they always index things differently. But the second half of the argument is that I would say it actually, it goes to code because of this contract that a horizontal change or a, a horizontal layer is a nightmare because your API is very heavily depended on. You have a lot of dependents downstream and a lot of them are outside your vertical. They're not directly in your downstream. They're in your sideways stream. Isn't that what APIs are? Isn't that what services are? Mm -hmm. And I would personally much rather have that layer in there. And then hypothetically, you could, if you wanted to, replace the whole drugs API with something that uses a different database. Yes, yes. And that is actually, the drugs API, it's it's a repository service. It's intended to sit on top of a database technology that we all love to hate and we we hate to love and you know we we want to get away from it <laughs> single server and um, <laughs> i was waiting for mongodb anyway yeah. and we we want to switch to postgres and we can't because we've got a ton of stored procedures written in tsql and so yeah what we're moving towards in order to, th- there was this huge amount of friction between the DBA team and the development team. And the only peace treaty that could be arrived at was repository services. And that works great right up until you call a service that has to call another service that has to call a third service because that first service can't just go look in the database for the thing that it needs. And then the customer says, oh, by the way, that that first uh, head service I need it to return in under 200 milliseconds. And all three of these services are HTTP-based services, which can take up to half a second to handshake. Yeah, okay, so I got... Half a second? HTTP is a high throughput, but also high latency. It it establishes an entire uh, handshake frame before it sends stuff across. It's a nightmare. So Okay, I want to raise my hand here because... (laughs) <laughs> and you, you've spoken a little bit about, okay, here's how you would start to replace databases by, you know, moving things into services and, you know, having, you know, you basically create a, a more malleable and more friendly horizontal layer, so to speak. But why? 
why would you want to switch databases and when is it actually worth it? Because I heard a bunch of usuallys and almost always is mm-hmm. as far as it's extremely painful to move your data from one database to another and, you know, keep the kind of consistency you need to be able to not interrupt service for your customer. Yep. So when is it worth it? I mean, when is it worth that level of pain why and grief? Yeah. Why would you do it? You know, I mean, David, why do you want away from SQL Server? So every database move I have ever done and the current attempting to move away from SQL Server to Postgres has been motivated by the same cause, and that's money. And when I say money, I mean money with a capital M. I mean lots of money, like six figures kind of money. We migrated away from MySQL to Postgres back in 2006 because Postgres Postgres is open source. Well, so is MySQL, right? Mm -hmm. No, MySQL is not open source. You are allowed to run a copy of it on your server for free, and that's great. But if you deliver the database server to someone, and we were doing that, we were helping customers do self-hosting, you have to pay a $1,000 site license each time. At least you did back in 2006. So we switched to Postgres, and it, it was a nightmare. SQL Server I don't know what we're paying, but I'm confident that the accumulated cost is well into six figures. And I'm also confident that the annual cost is in five figures and not like small five figures. It's not like 10,000 or 15,000. I want to say it's like 50 or 60. I don't know. I I could be, our DBA is going to just laugh at me when he hears me trying to talk about what we're doing with our databases. (laughs) Um, I just know that we've been trying to get away from SQL Server for a long time. There's a second reason, which is that uh, we're trying to standardize the development environment and just give everyone a vagrant box to develop on. And you flamingly violate the SQL Server license agreement if you put SQL Server inside the vagrant boxes that you're giving out to each of your developers. You can't do that. So that's the one t- one thing being driven not by cost. But it is also being driven by cost because we want to stop paying these huge licensing fees for SQL Server because we've thrown a lot of iron and a lot of, you know, let us pay for extra performance kind of things at SQL Server. So that's interesting from a different perspective. I think everything we've talked about so far has been, you know, developers wanting to bring in a new tool, developers wanting to bring in a new technology. But sometimes those pressures to change can come from outside the development organization. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, do you, also, what do you do about those where you don't agree with them or, you know, they impact you in a negative way? Well, you either change databases or you pull a hundred grand out of your butt. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're going to take the second option, you might want to stand up first. Uh, we also have moved into a case of talking about eliminating a technology. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, and that's, that's the cost that you have to consider when you introduce one. What's it going to take to get it out? If it's a tool, well, you stop using it. If it's a language, then you need to rewrite some portion of your system, of your code. And clearly, if it's a database, you're in for some pain. Yep. Uh, There's a beautiful blog post that came out. I don't know. I just saw it today. Have you seen it by Peter Siebel about a thousand flowers? Let a thousand flowers bloom. Pull up 999 of them. (laughs) Nice. I like it. It's beautiful, uh, and it is about, okay, let all these ideas happen. Now go back and see which ones really work for your organization and start making those work so well that people want to use them. Yeah, yeah. Lure people into standardization. Yes. There's a good illustration of this this trade-off. Like, should we use Memcache or should we use Redis? And the answer is, um, right, it's it's a trade-off. 
And I've, I've kind of sorted it out in my mind. So, so Redis is a proper superset of memcache. And I think it's almost a drop in, like you change the require and, and you're done. The get and set still work and everything's just fine. But Redis has all of these other things that you can do with it that you can't do in memcache. And so I almost want to tell people install memcache first because if you want to go to Redis later on, you can. But if you install Redis first, you're going to end up leveraging one of these extra things. And then if you decide to go to Memcache later on, you're not going to be able to. Okay, show of hands, who's switched, right? For who's ever gone from Redis down to Memcache for any reason other than like standardization or, you know, like, like nine, 99 de- developers in the company are using Memcache and one person is using Redis and that sort of thing. So that that might be a case where, yeah, you might want to go back the other way. But I've flipped on this. I've, I've started arguing that you should just install Redis first. And the reason why is because if you know Memcache, that minimum barrier to entry is met. You can use Redis exactly the same way. And Redis pays off investment into the learning curve where Memcache doesn't. Memcache is dumb code, is a dumb key store. And it's got a minimum barrier to entry, but it also doesn't pay off if you're going to do any kind of cleverness, you have to do it in the code, and that increases your cognitive load. You have to remember that you're building this this index of sets in the code now, and that means you have to keep it in your head, where in Redis, you just say, I need an index of sets, go. If you are using that Redis feature, then right. apparently you got some use out of that Redis feature. Right. Well, right. and the other thing is, is that in my experience, I haven't found that it's hurt me to be on Redis in the first place. I mean, there's yeah. there. I haven't found a pain that would make me want to, you know, to basically downgrade to memcache. Right. So, you know, unless unless there's some use case where it's like, yeah, if you're managing these keys in this way on Redis, it's going to be ten times more performant on memcache. Then I could, right. you know, I could see, you know, a serious trade off having to be made. But, uh, you know, I, I haven't encountered that, and I don't know anyone who has. So, yeah. You know. If I did encounter it, I can imagine two cases where I would encounter it, and they both come from the outside. One is when IT pushes back and says, we have vetted Memcache, but we have not vetted Redis. In which case, you say, well, vet Redis. And then they say, well, that's going to cost money. And the second case is where – I forgot the second case. Crap. But it was, it was actually coming from the business side of things where somebody's actually trying to save money or make money, and I can't think of it. If I remember it, I'll I'll mention it. So, but they're both external pressures. Neither one of these pressures is internal. Yeah. You don't see people saying, oh my gosh, memcache. I hate it. You can increment these variables atomically. Why? That's dumb. Why do I have to learn this? Right. You just, no, you just look at it and it just works and you're just fine. Yep. Does anybody have success stories of when they brought in a new technology and it worked really well? We only remember the failures. They stand out so much more. That's true. That's common, isn't it? I would hark back to Mark Lorenz bringing in Go. Uh, for a tool, I did actually have a success case bringing in Cucumber into a team, and all of the developers hated Cucumber because it was so slow. And these are the same people that hate RSpec because it's so slow compared to Minitest. And, okay, fair dues. Once I saw how fast Minitest was, I was like, holy crap, you guys have a point. But that's neither here nor there. With Cucumber, I was able to sit down with the customer and write out features in a domain language that the customer could read. And that all of a sudden became like a business reason. So the developers on the team didn't really like Cucumber, but the customer absolutely freaking loved it. I mean, he flipped out. And so the developers like, well, okay, I guess we're going to do Cucumber now. 
And we pushed in cucumber at that point. And it made things interesting for everybody else. So maybe this is actually a bad idea, a bad example. Well, I mean, I, I can think of a few cases. I, I remember when I came and worked with you at uh, Crime Reports, you know, one of the things that I came in and had experience with as far as tools that nobody else had really brought into the system, I'm sure some people had used it before, was Jenkins or it might have been Hudson at the time. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, so I came in and set up continuous integration for our applications. And then, you know, that, you know, moved into an area where we had uh, a small monitor in our bullpen that showed the status of the projects and things like that. And that paid off. You know, generally, I see the easiest wins in things like tools. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I'll see it in libraries where the API is just so much simpler than something else. But, also testing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh! I haven't had to fight that battle, at least not much. I just had a huge epiphany on how to take an existing thing and increase the payoff for investment and reduce the barrier to entry. C- can I share? That's it for the time today. And- yep, we're done. Yep. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> we're done. Time for picks. Yep. So, Chuck, actually, you reminded me of this because I remember you coming on board at Crime Reports, and I specifically remember I want continuous integration, and I want a monitor we fought with the IT team for like six months Oh yeah, um, before they would just put a stupid monitor up. But I wanted a TV up on the screen or up on the wall that showed us all of our repos and what the build status was on each of them. Just green or red. Just show me that. That's all I care about. And I remember Chuck coming in and I remember having the thought, I'm going to make CI Chuck's problem. It so was that my it problem. It works. So, yeah. And I, I said that meant to myself, and I was actually thinking, I'm going to make it his problem so that it isn't anybody else's problem. So in other words, we put an API around, and Chuck, you were the API. <laughs> yeah. We put an API around continuous integration so that there was no sideways impact on the other developers. Like it's There was one day when uh, Eric and I decided that we wanted to change how the continuous integration was displayed. And so we dove into the Jenkins code and, you know, we ripped into this gnarly XML rendering, you know, nightmare thing. And it looked like eRubus, embedded Ruby ERB. It looked like that, only it was Java in XML. It was it was a nightmare. And we we ended up just backing away and saying, we don't want this feature bad enough to look at this. But the thing is, is that after Chuck turned on the lights on this project, the rest of the team never had to learn CI. The only thing you had to learn was how to look at a screen on the wall that all of us could see in the bullpen. So by extension, what I'm saying is if you put an API around it, if you build a tool rather than building a project that has to be maintained by everyone in a new language, if you build a tool that can be used, then the language that the tool is written in doesn't impact anybody. They're just using the API. If you write a library that has all these hairy, weird, regular expressions, but all of the public methods are well-named and well-factored, then you have decreased the minimum barrier to entry to use that piece of code while maximizing the payoff for using that code. If somebody wants to dive in, they can. But if they don't want to, they don't have to. I think you've thought of something I've heard it, but I've heard of before. I think I think it was called abstraction. Obstruction? I thought that was a good <laughs> <laughs> I drove through through some of that today. Yeah. Oh wait, yeah. oh wait, wait. No, that's that's road constriction that you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can abstract. 
in a library in the code, or you can abstract something organizationally. So yes. then a person can be the API, can be the abstraction layer, or Twitter and Netflix have entire teams for this. Mm-hmm. And I would point out that you can do dumb abstraction and it doesn't help anybody. You know, it still makes baby Jesus cry, you know, if he could read and if he could type. But a good abstraction is like this. Yes, it reduces this barrier. If you've got a function that takes three other function pointers as lambdas or procs and the function is called do it, you probably have a bad abstraction is where I'm going with that. I, I'm good on you for extracting the three methods, but then passing them as method pointers to a third method to string them together. That's not the best way you could have implemented the inversion of control pattern. Besides which, if you were really doing functional programming, it would be called F. Yes. Yes. <laughs> do it is four letters and that's a waste of space. Yep. I worked with a team that do it is a smell or, or go or run is a smell. In my opinion, the only, the only place I don't get angry about that is uh, if the class is called application and it has a class method called run, I'm okay with that. Or even an instance method. If you have to instantiate the application and then call dot run, that's fine. But I call these methods punch press methods because the caller of the method has to set everything up, has to set all the instance. And then you hit the button and it goes ka-chunk. And now you reach into the class and you collect all of your output out of the punch press. And I got my team hooked on pronouncing do it because we did actually have some methods called do it. And I got my team hooked on pronouncing it doit. And just the funny sound of doit made people stop writing doit methods. That's a bad abstraction is what I'm saying. Don't do that, kids. From now on, I'm calling mine work. Um... <laughs> Unless you're not getting paid for it, in which case you should call it play. <laughs> Thank you. Unless it's a media player, then it should be called work. So many roles. <laughs> I know. Now you know why I'm so messed up. How many years have you worked with David? Uh, Enough to be this messed up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we worked together off and on, probably totaling like three or four years, maybe. Yeah, something like that. All right. Well, any any other aspects of this we should jump on before we get to the picks? I'm good. No, I think I got my rants out. Yay! All right, well, let's go ahead and do picks then. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Code School. Code School is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, Code School has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at CodeSchool.com slash RubyRogues. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Braintree. Go check them out at BraintreePayments.com slash RubyRogues. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they are a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. Coraline, do you want to start us with Fix? Sure. I actually want to talk about a couple of projects that I've been working on lately. Um, the first one is Open Source for Women. It's at os4w.org. Basically, the problem I'm trying to solve with OS for Women is that only one in 10 open source contribu- uh, contributors are women, and I want to move that number. So I created this online community that lets other women find um, it lets women find other women to collaborate with, to pair with, to form mentoring relationships with. and also has a project finder that you can use to locate projects that, for example, have a code of conduct or that have, you know, women on the core team. Um, so these are 
in theory, welcoming projects that you can feel confident contributing to. Um, and then ideally you find a pair partner and pair up on working on that given project. So um, it's an interesting resource. It's pretty new. We have about 200 users so far and just becoming an active community. It is just for people who identify as women. If you're interested in supporting the project, but do not identify as a woman, we have a be an ally page with some ideas on how you can help with that. So that's always for women. The other project is one that's been more long-term. It's called Contributor Covenant. And the problem that Contributor Covenant is trying to solve is that open source is not very welcoming and inclusive by its very nature. And that a lot of projects are hostile to newbies or hostile to people who don't look exactly like the core maintainers. So Contributor Covenant is a way of signaling that your project is welcoming and is inclusive by establishing some baselines for community behavior and what your community ideals are what sort of things will be tolerated, what sort of things are encouraged, what sort of things are, you know, incredibly wrong to do or just kind of wrong to do or things that you frown upon, basically establishing some community mores and enforcing those, a mechanism for enforcing those. Contributor Covenant has been adopted by about 5,000 open source projects so far, and most recently Rails adopted it. So if you have an open source project and you want to be welcoming and inclusive to different types of contributors, you should consider that. And I'll put a link to that site in the show notes. Yeah, I'd also got a shout out at uh, Angular Remote Conf uh, this last week. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, uh, Kent C. Dodds was doing a talk on how to open source your stuff. And, you know, so he goes through, here's how you set up these different files. And he said, and you should include, uh, I can't even remember the term anymore. Code of conduct. A code of conduct. And he basically showed them how to pull the covenant into the project. So oh, awesome. That's really cool. All right, Jessica, what are your picks? All right. Well, I just got home from Strange Loop which was an amazing conference yet again this year. I'm going to pick two of the keynotes. One is Camille Fournier, and she talked about distributed systems, a beautiful description of three distributed systems and what we can learn from them and how we can consider trade-offs and make the right choices for our particular problem. Spoiler alert, the answer is to be careful about how we design our data and uh, be conscious of the trade-offs that matter to us. There's also a piece in there where she describes the lurking dangers behind a fragmented microservices architecture with lots of different programming languages. My second pick is the keynote from the first day, the afternoon keynote by Idaline Bobet. And this one's very different. This one is about what it's like growing up in a poor neighborhood in North Philadelphia and somehow finding her way into tech and trying to bring technology to people who are in circumstances like she had growing up. It's about her life. It's about the life of people of color in the United States and the world today. And I highly recommend it to any technologist who wants to um, expand their own perspective on what we're doing and what we can do. Those are my picks. All right. I've got a couple of picks. So I had Angular Remote Conf last week. Uh, went really well. First one is, is I am going to shout out about Rails Remote Conf, which is going to be at the beginning of November. So if you are interested in speaking or attending, then you are welcome to. Um, we also have users group tickets, which I have made available to both corporations and users groups. So if you have a group of people that want to get together and participate in the conference, then do that. The other pick I have, TV Fool, tvfool.com. That's where I actually went and figured out where to get the antenna or which antenna I needed to get the channels at my house. And basically it showed 
different colors. So there were green, which meant that I could get it without too much trouble. Yellow meant that, again, you know, I could get regular reception. And then the majority of the channels were actually red. And it listed them as red because I needed a high-power directional antenna on the top of my house. And so we put the antenna up. It told me what direction to point it in. So I just opened up the Compass app on my phone. Um, and we got it pointed in the right direction and hooked it up to the all the TVs in the house. So now all the TVs get about 40 channels. Um, several of them were Spanish, which I don't speak, or were uh, shopping channels. And so I just use the TV's functions to cut those out. But anyway, uh, it was super awesome, and I'm super happy with uh, the results. So if you're looking at cutting your cable and you want to get an antenna, then that's a terrific way to go. I think that's all we got. So uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. And uh, thanks. look forward to talking next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 